This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 is brought to you by Fitz for Good. So my dad passed away when I was two years old. So um, he left my mother with six kids to look after from a low income as a domestic worker. So in my childhood, really, I didn't like school because my family was poor and I was bullied quite a lot at school by by my classmates. So I can be very honest with you that I never liked school because my mom was so poor and she was working hard as a domestic worker to try to support all of us. This is Vitz Impacts for Good and I'm UCBS McKaiser. In this episode, we venture deep below the earth's surface and ask if a better understanding of what goes on under the ground can lead to safer operations above it. Having overcome the odds to emerge as the first black South African to obtain a PhD in geophysics, Dr. Musa Manzi takes us on a journey from Ndwedwe in rural KwaZulu-Natal to the bright lights and intimidating walls of academia at Wits University with only a few hundred rand in his back pocket and the clothes on his back. We treat the earth as a patient. So we're basically sending all this type of waves and, and seismic waves into the ground and they propagate all the way to about four or five, six kilometers. And they bounce off geological features at the subsurface of the earth to the surface And then we analyze the speed at which these waves propagated down and the time they took. Then we get the three-dimensional picture of the Earth. Then we know where the mineral resources are, oil and gas deposit. In this podcast series, we answer the toughest questions on science, technology, society and the environment. We introduce you to WITS originators who are making strides in their fields of expertise. Reflection seismology is an unknown study, a technology that injects energy into the ground, mapping how this energy spreads through the surface and when it returns again. How are we able to use this technology to ensure the safety and well-being of vulnerable mine workers, both under the ground and above it? The groundbreaking research led by Dr. Musa Manzi has the ability to redefine mining, something that drives Musa and his students every single day. I want to know firstly where you come from. Very few people are born and bred in Johannesburg. I myself come from the Eastern Cape. Are you another one of Joburg's residents that have come to this city to come and look for your academic and other fortunes? Or are you from here? No, I was born in Guazulu-Natal, in again, which is a poor rural village in the northern part of Devon. In Natal. So I only came to Johannesburg in 2000 to just study. So tell us a little bit about your family, because very early on, your dad passed on. You were but a little boy, and it's not unfamiliar to South Africans, but it doesn't make the pain any less being raised by a mom as a single parent uh, who has to do her most to try and give an opportunity to you. In my family, for example, Dr. Manzi, I was the first person in my immediate family to even finish high school. Tell me a little bit about your family background. Um, so my dad passed away when I was two years old. So um, he left my mother with six kids to look after from a low income as a domestic worker. So in my childhood, really, I didn't like school because my family was poor and I was bullied quite a lot at school by by my classmates. So I can be very honest with you that I never liked school because my mom was so poor and she was was working hard as a domestic worker to try to support all of us. 
And I still remember some of the hateful things that were said to me when I was at school. One of the examples was like, you know, I was so dark and so everyone thought I was ugly. And they used to say things like, ugly guys get grades and beautiful guys get girls. So I still remember those jokes that used to be said at school. So to be honest with you, I dropped out of school quite a lot. And, and my siblings as well dropped out of school to look for low paying jobs so that they would be able to support themselves. Um, personally, I was very lucky because the teachers at school really liked me because they thought um, I was very good in mathematics and in music. So they went back to my mother to tell her to force me to go back to school because they thought I was going to become something big in the future. That is absolutely incredible because those are memories you carry into adulthood. You might have the title of professor, of doctor, many people in that South African habit of talking about the first black would refer to you as the first black South African from records it would appear to obtain a PhD in geophysics. But of course, deep in terms of your inner emotional landscape, these are titles that we come to wear in Jawsy on stage when there's an academic procession. But secretly, you are no doubt profoundly aware of those early roots. Um, yeah, that's correct, because, I mean, I still I talk to a lot of young people about my past because I really try to, to break the barriers, you know, because when I finished matric, I was the first one in my own family to, to finish matric. And at school, really, when I dropped out, when I was pushed going back, my mother used to shout at me quite a lot, saying that she brought me into this earth, but she was not responsible for what I became, and that she made it very clear to me that education was the only pathway out of poverty in my family. And I really started loving mathematics when I was doing grade nine and grade 10. So actually my other name is doctor. When my mother took me to school <laughs> to do grade one, um, they asked my mother to give me an English name, which I don't know why they wanted that, but they asked my mother to give me an English name and my mother named me Doctor, so I'm Musa with Dr. Manzi, because my mother wanted me to become a doctor. But because of the careers and the exposure, I think my mother wanted me to become a medical doctor because she didn't know much about um, the doctor, that PhDs and all kinds of stuff. So really, my mother had a big dream, and 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 she really instilled discipline and the importance of education in my life. When I was in grade nine. In grade 10, that's when I wanted to invest more time in learning about physics and mathematics. So in grade 10, um, we found ourselves at school without, without mathematics and physical science teachers. So I spoke to the principal that because I wanted now to become a doctor of science of some sort. So I told the teachers that I wanted to teach maths and physical science at grade 10, 11 and 12 which, of course, the principal opposed, saying that there were no resources at school to teach those courses, and also there were no laboratories to do physical science experiments. But I took it upon myself to study very hard day, uh, very hard day and night to teach my classmates. So in grade 12, um, of course, I passed, I got 100% for maths, 98% for physical science, and that opened doors of opportunities for me to find myself in Johannesburg. So when I finished my matric, my mother was very proud of me. So I asked my mother for 95 rand to take a bus to Johannesburg, which was city to city. Um, so I took a bus to a foreign city in Johannesburg. I got to Johannesburg. I really had no, no understanding how Johannesburg looked. I didn't even know where it was. So I got to the admin office at Vets University 
Um, so I got there, I told them I came to study at VETS and they said to me, did you apply? I said, no, I didn't apply because in the rural areas, we were not told that to qualify to enter into the university, you need to apply. So I came with my marks. So I was very disappointed with my bags. I didn't even know where I was going to go if I was not accepted at VETS. So what happened is one of the administrators saw my marks and then they made a late application for me. So I was accepted into VETS University to study BSc degree majoring in maths, physical science, and computer science. So I'm, that's how I got myself in Johannesburg. I'm gobsmacked. It is an absolutely remarkable story. I want to backtrack to add a footnote to how remarkable that story is, Musa. That not only had you been an early dropout persuaded to go back into school, but in addition to that, the school environment itself was under-resourced. So to effectively self-teach when it comes to mathematics and science, without the requisite resources in your high school is absolutely incredible. Given that you didn't even have a specialist teacher, how did the headmaster even react to you suggesting that you wish up until matric level to take subject areas that obviously were not routine in your school? Yeah, that's a very good question because the maths and physical science were never done in our school. So we're the first group to actually want to do maths and physical science in higher grade. I was very lucky because um, there was a woman who was staying nearby the school who paid for my Saturday classes to attend some of the Saturday classes so that I could upskill myself in mathematics so that I would be able to teach my classmates. So I really spent whole, the whole night just looking at the maths. But I can tell you the reality of my investment in that mathematics um, um, time that I spent doing maths and physical science. So what happened is as I was doing maths, I learned quite a lot of skills to be honest about myself. For example, one of the things I learned was perseverance because if you work on these mathematical problems and the algorithms, you learn to try different things and then you learn to develop that patience. Your mind develops the habit to keep on trying. And so something that was profound to me and mathematics, to be honest with you, was the only language that I understood because also in our school, English was not so good. The Africans, the languages were not so good because we didn't have good teachers in those subjects. But mathematics, because you speak in, the t in terms of X and Ys, for me it was the easy language to understand. Of course, the physics as well as part of physics, looking at the physics and looking at the nature, the laws of nature, I fell in love and how you can actually use these principles to study the earth. So basically... All the kids who were doing physical science and mathematics in our year, they all passed the trick. And it was the first time in the history of school that we produced 100% pass rate for maths and physical science. So even now, the school, we still visit the school quite a lot to encourage and inspire the young people not to give up on their dreams just because they have limited resources. I'm inspired um, to Listening to you recounting that story is absolutely, absolutely amazing to me. If we scripted it as a film for inspirational purposes, few people would put money behind it because they would say it's overwritten. But of course, these are the true facts of your own life. When it comes to subjects like maths, physics and computer science, even those of us who went to former Model C schools 
opted out of subjects like computer science if we didn't have a computer at home because we felt, certainly myself, at a competitive disadvantage with children that may be able to practice programming at home, for example, who are already familiar with how to do basics on a computer like Microsoft Word, things we take for granted now because there's greater access. But back then, the digital divide was even greater because of early adopters being way ahead of the rest of us for whom it was prohibitively expensive. When you get to Wits University, was it not enormously difficult to have to worry about food insecurity and hunger, to have to worry about where you're going to sleep, and at the same time, catching up with peers of yours who may well have gone to well-resourced schools, already fluent in some of the fundamentals of computer science? Yes, when I got to Wits, it was really, really hard because I remember, first of all, in our class, which was predominantly white, it was very intimidating for me coming from a, an area where I've never actually interacted with white people. That itself, and all the lecturers were white. And so that was a bit intimidating for me. And when I came to university, um, I couldn't really speak English properly. I couldn't communicate. And at the same time, I didn't have a place to stay because since I had six distinctions, so I got 6,000 rand from the university to get registered, but I didn't have the funds to find accommodation. So I slept in the libraries and in the computer labs. So I was eating from my friends' places in the dining hall. So my friends used to bring me food in the library. But I spent a lot of time in the computer labs, as you say, teaching myself how to program, teaching myself how to write assignments. One of the things that were embarrassing for me was, was that I could not type because I had not seen a computer before. So it was good for me to sleep in the laboratory because I could type very slowly the whole night because there was no one who was going to be able to see me and laugh at me. So these are the things that I was not only struggling to program, I had to get used to the computer, which I was seeing for the first time. So I spent really sleepless nights learning computers, learning to program. And of course, as you've mentioned, at the same time competing with some of the kids who were coming from top schools, at the same time trying to understand the English that was presented to me. So Um, I really tried my best, but later on in the years, I think all the effort and the time invested learning the computer by myself paid off because of some of the research I've done using programming algorithms. Dr. Manzi, like I say, if I scripted your story, few investors would believe that it's believable. Despite what you've just told me, which is tea-inducing on its own, you still became a parent And the reason you became a parent is that you had to become a guardian to your two nieces, four and seven, as a result of losing mom and your sister a day apart from each other during final exams. Talk me through that. I mean, that is absolute incredible devastation for one student uh, to endure, let alone one with your biography with which you already come to the city. That was a turning moment for me in 2004 because I was doing my my third year in physics, math and computer science. And... I've always wanted to, to, to do the best for my mother because I owe everything that I have to her. So I really thought I was doing it all for her. I wanted to, to spoil her. I wanted to build a house for her. So when I was doing my third year, I got the news that my mother was sick and my sister. So I used to travel to Devon every Friday to take to look after them. I took them to the hospital. I didn't have money to live with them. Um, and then 
two weeks later, just before I wrote my final exams, I got the news that my mother had passed away. I went down to Devon. Um, a day after that, my sister passed away. So I lost my mom and my sister within a day of each other. And my sister left two nieces, which I then brought to Johannesburg to live with me. We slept at Park Station one of the days. We slept in the library. Um, we really struggled. And everyone knew at vets that there was this boy who was suffering with two kids sleeping in the libraries. I was called to the offices at vets many times, people wanting to hear my story. But in that process, I was really surrounded by a lot of lovely people. I was, and I always tell the young people that I'm a, I'm a product of some great generosity of other people of giving, people invested. My colleagues, my lecturers gave me money to survive, I was receiving 200 rand, 100 rand every day from friends just to survive on a daily basis. And one day, um, one of my classmates realized that um, I wasn't showering, I was attending classes, and she said to me, can I invite you to my mom's place for dinner? And I said to her, she was, she was a white girl, a very good friend of mine at the university, and I said, um, yes, I'd love to come over for dinner. She invited me to her mom's place, and her mother, for the first time in my life, I received a hug from her mother. She told me how beautiful I was. And of course, growing up with, with deep hatred from what was said to me when I was young, that I was an ugly child, I was never going to be able to make it in life. So for the first time, this woman gave me a hug, and I received my first kiss ever. Um, from somebody at that time. And she said to me, do you have a place to stay? <laughs> um, she said to me, do you have a place to stay? I lied that I had a place to stay because I didn't want to be a burden to them. But then they found out that me and my nieces had no places to stay. We were sleeping in the libraries while I was fighting for my education, while I was mourning the loss of my mother and my sister. Those weeks passed by, and then one night I got a call that my brother was killed by a friend, was shot dead on the spot. And I had to go back to Devon and prepare for the third funeral. Mm. I really wrote down a piece on a piece of paper during those days to say that there was nothing left for me to live for because I wanted to do all this for my mother. But I remembered my mother's words that I brought you into this earth but I'm not responsible for what you become. Mm. Everything you're doing mm. for yourself, in, she said, was the Fundela way. So those words really kept me going. And I wanted to commit suicide, but I didn't. I tried at vets and I was taken to campus health and I was taken to the hospital. I was mentally depressed and I was surrounded by so much great love from friends from all over the place. And I came out very strong and I continued with my studies. And here I am today. I want to talk about that. I mean, firstly, I'm fascinated that you were able, nevertheless, to do extremely well. Many of us who have personal difficulty do not necessarily complete a research project because personal difficulties, particularly of a mental health nature, can be very totalizing in terms of how much of your energy it requires to stave off suicidality as you successfully had. But maybe let's move on. We'll come back to how you managed to juggle dealing with the personal and the academic at the same time and focus squarely on the academic. What the hell is geophysics? <laughs> geophysics, it's such a beautiful cause. <laughs> it's uh, basically geophysics. It's, um, it uses the principles of physics and maths to study the interior structure of the earth, its composition and the shape. Mm. 
So in terms of applied geophysics, as it, as it used to explore the subsurface of the Earth, so basically trying to find out what is beneath our feet. So it is used to explore for oil and gas and mineral resources. So we basically say we try to simplify the laws of nature and unite the detached branches of sciences and try to investigate the subsurface of the earth so that we can find gold, we can find platinum, we can find copper, all the other minerals that you can think of, as well as oil and gas resources. So basically, in simple terms, if you go to a radiologist in the hospital, they use x-rays to study the interior part of your body. They look at the organs, they look at the tissues, they look at the bones, and they give you the picture to say that there is something wrong with your body. If you go for ultrasound imaging, they mm. do the same thing, send ultrasound to your body. You're able to visualize your interior part of your body in a three-dimensional uh, in three dimension, and then from there they're able to treat you. So we treat the earth as a patient. So we're basically sending all these type of waves and and seismic waves into the ground, and they propagate all the way to about four, five, six kilometers, and they bounce off geological features at the subsurface of the earth to the surface. And then we analyze the speed at which these waves propagated down and the time they took. Then we get the three-dimensional picture of the Earth. Then we know where the mineral resources are, oil and gas deposits. In addition to that, we have a rich history. Uh, and I, I'm pausing because it's at once a proud history, but also one of violation, a rich history of a mining sector that has gifted the world an incredible amount of the output of what it is that we extract from the extractive industries here in South Africa. But there's also incredible safety issues when it comes to the mining sector, Musa, that very often seismic activity deep down in the earth cannot be properly predicted or occupational health and safety regulations are not adhered to in terms of the letter and spirit of the regulations by many many mining corporations. Can you explain to me as a layperson how this 3D approach and treating and viewing planet earth, including what is beneath the ground as a patient, how does that kind of groundbreaking work that you have done, explain it to me, how does it help us in turn to understand, for example, not just to locate um, certain minerals, but also to help us to be able to minimize the risks and the hazards that come with sending many poor black boys and men that may well come from the same areas as KZN as yourself, deep down into the belly of the earth? That's a very good question. I'm glad you asked it because it's, it's something that's very important for us and for the mining industry. So there's two things that are fundamental that are facing the mining industry. One, they want to extract the ore. The second one is to do it safely. So our research is really in line with both helping the mine find more deposits and also to mitigate the risk that associated with deep mining. As you have said, so the deep mining industry in South Africa. So we're basically mining at depth of about 4.5 kilometers, sometimes 3.5 kilometers. So we host the deepest mines in the world. So we also use some of the labor-intensive mining methods, which means that you will have as many as 5,000 miners working in a single shaft. 
So the miners are facing various hazards, as you've mentioned, rock pest, as well as rockfall and the methane explosion. A story that's been dominating the headlines in the past two days has been uh, miners trapped underground. At least 1,800 miners are set to be trapped underground at Sibanya Stillwater Mine in Rustenburg in the northwest province. From what we know at the moment, the reports we've received tonight, the miners may not be able to exit via one of the shafts due to possible damage. It's understood that if that is the case, workers would have to exit at another shaft some four kilometers away. I'm relieved because for about 32 hours I've been underground without any defense were not working so everything was not working so now the idea is where do we come in and how do we solve this problem using our research so now we're saying before you start mining you should fully understand the 3D picture of the subsurface of the earth so you need to know where the old body is and identify the fractures that might be prone to seismicity. So we're talking about the cracks that cross-cut your whole body, that's when you mine, they might be reactivated and they cause mine seismicity. So what happens is as you mine, you remove the rock from the ground. So when you remove the rock from the ground, because of gravity, the earth wants to close. And what will happen is you will have rock fall. So that's one of the hazards. So if you're underground, the rock will fall from the roof and probably hit your head and you may die. And secondly, when you remove the rock underground at 3.5 kilometers, your stress increases and your temperature increases. So what happens is the stress around your rock mass increases and they exceed the strength of the rock. So when that happens, the energy that is stored in the rock is released in a form of sound. So you hear the sound underground. That's what we call the mine-induced seismicity. So it's similar to you breaking the rule, the ruler. If I break the ruler, I apply pressure to the ruler, and then what happens is I exceed the strength of the the stress I'm applying exceed the strength of the ruler. Then the ruler breaks. Mm. That's exactly what happened. So what we're saying is we. And then the third thing that I want to mention before I go further is the methane explosion, mm. which is the part that puts my research in a global map because the methane underground gets detected quite continuously. So when they mine, they detect this methane, but the question is, they don't know where it comes from. So what we did with 3D seismic when I was doing my PhD, so I look at this 3D seismic technology as it's been applied for mineral exploration. So I say to my supervisor when we visited the mines, I had these stories about miners dying sometimes underground because of the methane explosion, because of the mine seismicity. And I said, I want to turn around this technology and use it to save life. And he looked at me and said, how are you going to do that? So I went back home. So I look at this particular seismic data. So what I did is I came up with mathematical algorithms. So what we do is we look at this data, we try to identify the small features that can act as conduit to transmit, to transmit water and methane to the mining level. Mm. The engineers are able to tell there is methane underground, but they do not understand the mechanism by which methane and water get transmitted to the mining level. Because when that happens, then the methane will escape water. All you need is oxygen and a bit of a spike in the mines, and then you cause explosion. Mm. 
So what I did is I came up with this algorithm, which was done for the first time in the world. So basically, I look at the mathematical algorithm. So the way I want you to think about it is that when you apply certain filters using your phone, you enhance your beauty before you post that picture on Instagram. So basically, what, you have, what you're doing is you try to suppress these pimples which are in your face so that you can enhance your beauty. So we're doing the same thing with the data set. I apply this algorithm, mathematical and physical science algorithms to enhance some of the features in the seismic data that, are not, that you're not able to see with your eyes. So what we found out that in a three-dimensional sense, these fractures were transmitting water from the subsurface of the earth, from about 500 meters below the surface of the earth, the mining takes place at about 3.5 kilometers. So these fractures were transmitting water and methane for kilometers and kilometers to the mining level in an open space, in a void, in the excavations where they're mining. Hmm. And then as soon as the methane enters that void, the methane escape from water because it's lighter <laughs> and then it wanders and then you need a bit of oxygen and a spike, then you cause explosion. So this paper submitted for as part of my PhD, which got the best paper award in geophysics in 2012. Musa, that's amazing. Given those insights, how many mining companies have used that incredible combination of geophysics and mathematics to translate it practically into making sure that we have greater levels of safety? Um, that's a very good question. So now I can tell you now most of the companies, since we've done that research, most of the companies in South Africa will tell you now they will not start mining without using the 3D seismic technology. So it's a well-established method now in South Africa. It's used in the platinum mines in Rustenburg. It's used in the gold mines in Kaltenfuhl as well as in Klekstop. So across South Africa, these, um, this technology has been used. And so what we've also managed to do is to map these fractures that might, that might be prone to mine seismicity. So basically, if you're going to have mine seismicity, you're ingesting stress. So what happens is we're able to identify these fractures ahead of time and probably provide the warnings to the mining companies to say, these fractures are likely to be reactivated and cause seismicity. So there's quite a lot that we're doing with this technology that was originally designed just for exploration for us, we're using it to save lives, to protect the miners that working in the deep South African gold and platinum mines in South Africa. And we have to remember that um, South Africa has a rich history. So the mining is a backbone of our economy. So we want to ensure that we extract the ore safely, but also at the same time, um, we, we mitigate the risks that are associated with various hazards that are, that are happening in the mines. Second last question, and I can honestly listen to you the whole day, but let's keep it two minutes per question. I love the analogies you use as you speak passionately about mathematics, about physics, and also more specifically about geophysics. How do you view the sciences as an art, as aesthetics, because it's very interesting to me as a student of the humanities, how many of the words that we would use in the humanities, you sneak into this conversation when you describe your subject. For me, science is art. You know, so for me, the combination of just looking at the complicated laws of nature in physics, gravitational acceleration, and you combine that with mathematics, you're looking at the geometry, shapes, 
And for me, that is fascinating. That is why I said earlier on, when I do mathematics, I find peace, I find love, because it's a language that I understand. And there's quite, the reason I'm saying it's a bit of art, it's because there's quite a lot that you actually learn from just looking at, this, at these algorithms. One of them is that you learn that patience I talk about. The other thing is that you, you develop that level of hopefulness because you with mathematics, you have to kind of use different types of algorithms, axioms and theorems to actually solve a certain problem. So the other thing is that you learn to work in a collaborative manner because you have to work with other branches of science to be able to solve certain problems. So for me, science is art and the combination of different branches of science being brought together is something that's mind-blowing and amazing. I think it should happen in almost all the fields. You established and were director of the Seismology Reflection Centre at Wits University and it has been developing and researching the kinds of innovative technologies that we have learned today. I want to ask you lastly, going back to the personal, how do you manage to be deep inside your academic excellence and journeys and what is your go-to place to make sure that the trials and tribulations of life, including having grown up under conditions of poverty that stays with one psychologically, that it does not choke you even if you have to remember where you come from? It's it's a very good question and I can ask I can answer it very honestly. For me, my drive is that one day when I leave this planet Earth, everything that I've done for myself will be gone. But the things that I've done for the people, for the young people of South Africa will remain behind as a legacy. In my research, if it doesn't have an impact on human, if it doesn't improve lives, I'm not interested, I'm not motivated to do that type of a research because I think it's more kind of related to, to where I come from. And my story resonates with a lot of young people in South Africa. So my, my passion is really that I really try to keep the doors open that were open for me when I entered these opportunities. I want to open these doors of opportunities for the young people of South Africa through research, through my inspirational talks I do across the country, through my involvement in a lot of non-profit organization in South Africa, because I want to give the young South Africans opportunities. I just want to make an example before you close, is that if the gold and platinum remains underground and discovered, it's not of value. If a young South African is sitting in the values of Limpopo, KwaZulu Natal, in the rural areas. Their talent is not discovered. It is not of value. So my idea is that we have to get out there and try to discover this young talent in South Africa and try to nurture them, inspire them, empower them so that they become the Musas of tomorrow, the Michaels, that, the guy that you interviewed in this episode, mm. the Michaels of tomorrow, the top researchers of tomorrow. It is with us, and I want to leave this with the young people of South Africa, that life will get tough, but remember to dream big, think big, and start small. Post-COVID-19, I believe that there will be a lot of opportunities in South Africa, and we need to really, really get prepared. So I always say, if you don't prepare for the opportunities, you'll prepare to fail when those opportunities arrive. Dr. Musa Manzi, only got two words. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for your time, and I really appreciate everything. This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 was brought to you by Vets for Good.